Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meet and academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course, in all our lives. Okay, so welcome to the School of Education podcast here at the University of Strathclyde. Today, I am delighted to welcome Amanda Corrigan, Samantha Walker, and Barry Urquhart, who belong to the Hidden Voices Network that's based here at the university. Um, so maybe we could start off just by asking um, our, our three um our three members of the network, if they want to see a little bit about themselves, just to help orientate ourselves before we start to talk about the network. Amanda, maybe you want to go first. So my name's Amanda Corrigan. I'm the Deputy Head for Teaching and Learning in the School of Education, but actually in the network, I'm just like everybody else. We're all, um, everybody's got an equal footing. So I'm just a part of the, the network, like anybody else who comes along. And Samantha? Hi, I'm Samantha Walker. Um, I'm currently a primary teacher in Eastern Bartonshire Council and I graduated from Strathclyde in 2019. And Barry? I'm Barry Urquhart and I'm in my final year at Strathclyde doing primary education. Um, And yeah. (laughs) And I'm guessing that you three are all founding members of the network. Yeah, we were all there when it started. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you were all there when it started and you all started it then I guess mm-hmm. so, so yeah. maybe you could say a wee bit about the origins of the network so it's called Hidden Voices Network where did it come from so originally it began um, it was actually quite a small number of us that were in it to start with and it was all people that had had experience um, working in Berlini prison um, with Toy Box Charity working with the children coming to visit a parent or a relative in prison but actually, we've kind of branched out a bit now, which has been great. We've now got people that are studying other subjects um, in the faculty and working in that kind of area. So it's been good, hasn't it, to have to branch out a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think we, I think we realised when we started the network that we all had a bit of knowledge about the area in some way, and we really wanted to try share that with other people um, and to kind of amplify the kind of voices of children affected and families affected by imprisonment that's often kind of forgotten or, or not as kind of talked about in society and we really wanted to try kind of build a network that we could really um, kind of raise awareness of the different needs that these children and families face. Claire I think that I had been impressed by the number of students that we had every year who worked in Berlin for the first year placement um, but wondered whether we weren't really capitalising on that so it was a placement experience and then when the placement was finished as a university, we became less interested, but almost all of those students have continued to work with the toy box in Berlin after that, continued to volunteer and had developed a passion for the rights and um, the voice, really, of young people who had a parent in prison and their families. So um, Sam's dissertation was on... Um, the impact of parental imprisonment. And Barry and uh, Alex McDermott, who's in the network, their um, dissertations in the same area and on family imprisonment as well. So it was that thing about trying to bring people together who had 
a knowledge base, but also a passion for being able to do something with that knowledge that we had. So as well as people who've worked in the prison system now, I've worked in Pullman with young offenders. We've got people who work, as Sam said, in that area, but we've also got um, some, we've got people who, who've had family members in prison themselves, um, people who've had experience of imprisonment themselves, who are part of our network too. But that's the, the bar. You can join the network if you've got experience of prison in some form. That's interesting. So, I mean, your aim is really quite broad then. It's not just that you're talking amongst yourselves, really. It, it's got a, a broader reach than that. Maybe you could share a wee bit about the, the broader aims of the network. I think our, our kind of main aims is, you know, to amplify the voices that are often hidden, and, and that's why we called it Hidden Voices. Um, but I think also our, our main aim is that within the network, we all want to develop our own our own knowledge. We we know that we're, we're coming with a little bit of knowledge um, from our particular experience, but we all don't know everything. Um, and it was really important to us to all learn from each other and to widen our own knowledge before we can go and try to educate other professionals um, who work with these children and families affected. I'm interested in this idea that you're learning from each other. How, how does that manifest itself then? What kind of things have you been doing in order to, to share the knowledge or the experiences that you have? Um, we've had the chance quite quickly when we started to like break into little groups ourselves and bring together our own experience, our own knowledge. Obviously, as I said, we're all doing very different things and we're at different stages in our career. So it's nice, like some of us have got more experience, some don't, but we've done things like that, working together in small groups and then presenting back to each other. Um, and then we ourselves have had training as well, haven't we? We've been lucky to work with some really good charities and things that we can take into our own practice. So I think we're all just kind of coming together and trying to use each other to learn something new from that we can take out with us. So what kind of things have you been learning then that you, you're taking into your own practice? I think something that I've really learned from discussion, it was those kind of small group discussions and that we had was the effect of kind of negative statistics of children affected by imprisonment and that often when you look at research and, and studies about the effects of imprisonment, there's a big focus on the risk these children have of going on to offend themselves and that's often the kind of main focus in a lot of research papers and, and we kind of discussed it and thought actually that can be really detrimental and why is that the main focus we should be you know focusing on the positives and what how we as professionals can support um, children and families to make the positive outcomes and really why is there such a focus on what could happen the negatives we should be focusing on the positives and what we can do to support and have positive outcomes. Have you got any sense of why it seems to be the, the, the negative elements, the focus? I think there's there's quite a lot of kind of, you know, moral panic around imprisonment. And I think it's still in society um, very much stigmatised. And I think there's a lot of stigma around imprisonment. So I think that's a, a big element of that. And there's kind of fear of it. And I think that kind of grabs also people's attention um, if that is the main statistic that is the focus. But I think it, it's a much bigger problem and needs to be kind of turned on its head. Um, I think a thought a bit more deeply and a bit more sensitively. Yeah. yeah and I mean, one of the other things, Claire, that would, um, that, that 
the notion of labelling children. Mm-hmm. Um, the child is a child of a prisoner and some of the things in your research recently, Vary, have been about how the, the child then is labelled within the community. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the composition of your family that changes, your position within school and your position within the community changes. And, and someone contacted me um, fairly recently to say that they were in a school where there's a child whose parent has been taken into prison, but the teacher's been told not to mention the parent to the child. Mm-hmm. So the parent has been removed from the child. The child's not allowed to see the parent at the moment, apart from and they're not allowed, nobody's allowed in the prisons just now. But the teacher hasn't to talk about it, and that's they've been told that they're not to do that. So it's like somebody um, spoke about it being a bit like um, a bereavement in some ways. Somebody's now missing from your life, but you don't know really know anything, but you don't necessarily understand that, or you were part of the trauma because you were in the house when that person was removed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you then live with the experience of it, but no real control within how you've been labelled and how society looks at you, how the school looks at you, how and the people who don't want to talk about your dad. But you would like to speak about your dad or your mum, or when you speak about them, people have a reaction that they might not have had before. So we've been interested in all that kind of thing, because from all of our perspectives, we've all got experiences of working with people who are living under labels that they didn't create for themselves. Yeah, and I suppose that idea of stigma, stigma is almost... Um, amplified in a sense so the the parent or the family member is stigmatized and by association the child is then stigmatized and so it's not even a label that they haven't you know that they've created for themselves it's it's a label that they haven't created for the parent either you know the parent is still the parent Mm -hmm. um first rather than anybody that's committed any kind of offense i assume so maybe that headlining that Barry's talking about just makes it much easier and, you know, it grabs people's attention, it kind of sensationalises things a wee bit and also makes it a wee bit more quantifiable. You know, we can count it and we can see it's a problem and we can suggest that we fix it mm-hmm. in some ways, whereas, and and it makes the child perhaps the problem yeah. rather than the, the, the issues surrounding the situation yeah, and I think as well sometimes it's easier isn't it to find negative things sometimes you have to dig a bit deeper to find the more positive things or the good stories that come out of it so I think people obviously sometimes just find it easier to see the headline almost and just take that rather than dig a bit deeper so mm. I think that's what we're just trying to do <laughs> I think another thing we've been quite clear about from the start is it's a, a network for action um, rather than a network for sensationalism um, I, I, I tend to use the term, it's a bit crass, this is not about prison porn, it's not about coming along to hear stories of, of people who've done bad things and, you know, um, get caught up in the stories of the people who are there, it's not about that, and that's one of the reasons why we've been teaching ourselves within our network, to understand the issues more, to understand the experiences of the children and their families more, but it's a big thing within our conference type events that we run, that people come because we expect them to do something with what they learn. And I've got a bit of a concern about some of the CPD or CLPL type things that some people go along to where they leave and go, oh, did you hear that? It's a bit, they're scandalised by it rather than move to action. And we're very, very clear within the network that we're not about the scandal part of it. Even if that, if it's not your experience at all, if you've never been to prison, if you don't know anybody that's ever been in prison, please don't come to our events if you're there to hear the stories, 
we only really want people to come to our events if by listening to these stories, you're making a commitment to think differently or to do something differently or just to change the world a tiny wee bit by being with us. And it sounds a bit grand in some ways, but it's ethical, I think, then to take people's stories and to use them to move people to action rather than to take the stories to, to titillate people, which is a horrible way to speak about it. But I know because of some of the people who've shared stories in the past, that that's how some professionals feel when they hear things are moved and they're emotional about it. But when you go back to ask them, so what, what happened after you went along to that CPD where somebody shared their, their life experience with you and somebody shared the, the, um, the trauma in their life with you or the adversity they faced in their life, so what, what did you do about that? And that's a difficult question for some people because actually they didn't really do anything about it. I suppose those of us that are working in the field of education, as we all are, it's incumbent upon us that as an applied field that actually that action is a real part of, of our consideration and our contemplation of issues around education and children's lives. But there seems to be very little point in it if, if it doesn't influence um, behaviour in some way, shape or form. So what then do you think is... I suppose the most significant thing that you've learned so far and, and how have you started to enact that, if you like, in your own practice or in other people's practice so far? I think for me, actually, it was finding out how many charities and things are actually out there. And I think me personally, I mean, I didn't really know just how much work they actually do for the families and children. And I think it would be really interesting if more people knew about that because myself obviously as a teacher a year two years ago I wouldn't have known about them so I wouldn't have known where to go if I needed to support someone in my class so I think for me the biggest thing definitely was finding out who's out there and what they can do to support me or even just a bit of knowledge around it just for me to be able to read and think you know like I get that I can do something with that was it include them we were they came along and they were really good weren't they they were really supportive to the families and I hadn't heard of them before Including? Include them. Include them. Mm -hmm. And they've got a website and so on that people could go on and yeah. look at. Yeah, Families Outside is another really good organisation um, that provides training um, to professionals that work with children and families affected by imprisonment as well. So that's another really good one and they have a website um, too. I think I think for me it was, it was kind of the same point as Samantha. Um, and I think through, through doing my dissertation, it's made me a lot more aware um, of a lot of professionals, you know, not knowing of the different organisations that can support um, children and families affected. And my dissertation, it was, it was kind of focused on, on the additional support needs policy in Scottish education and whether that meets the needs of children affected by imprisonment. And I found that, you know, due to the inclusive nature of the policy and legislation, that it does meet needs of any child that needs support, but the actual specific nature of the different groups that you're supporting isn't known because there's not space for that in all of the policy. So there is a lot of onus on professionals to go and do their own research about how they can support their particular group. So I think that's really something as our, our network, especially from feedback from our last event, that we really want to focus on you know, providing the information about different organisations that can support um, both the child and the families, but also the professionals supporting them. I think so, we were a bit shocked, Claire. I think we were at, um, we had a what we called a mini conference. We had two speakers in February, and 
we each invited up to six people each that you know to come along and hear the, the speakers and then to go into breakout rooms so that we could decide as a network does this work you know how do we manage that or particularly online I think we were shocked by the feedback from people in education who didn't really know anything about this and didn't know where to go to find out about it and who sent feedback saying um, this is the first time that I've really known about some of these issues and for the majority of the people in the network were their undergraduate students. So in some ways we were validated in what we thought that we were sitting on knowledge that we knew was not that everybody didn't have access to. But at the same time, I suppose it's that there's a kind of, I don't know that it's a Scottish thing where we go, do you know that this is just us? Do you know that this is, we're just a group of people who got together because we've got similar experiences and actually we're not the professionals who need to come out and tell teachers how to, to do this. But if nobody else is there to do that, are we the people to do? So there's a bit of a, a slight, I mean, we, people in our network who are second year undergraduates who were only starting in second year when they started on the network. You wouldn't know that when you come to the, the conferences, you know, second year undergraduates would be the people who will be holding the whole conference together doing the introduction and introducing the speakers. It doesn't matter where you are, you know, being a second year undergraduate doesn't make you more or less important than me because I'm the deputy head of the, the School of Education. But I think we were all a bit taken aback. Feedback was fantastic. But there was part of us, I think, that thought, oh, are you expecting us to be the people who help you to really understand this? So I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. So I, I want to go back a wee bit because I'll come back to the conference, but I want to go back and ask Barry about our dissertation in terms of um, policy. So policy seems pretty all-inclusive, but you seem to be implying that there's actually something missing. So if you were able to say something to policymakers about what should be in the policy, what would what would you be saying? I think it's it's really difficult, a really difficult question because I think, you know, with you know GERFEC um, and the Additional Supports Need Act, they are just supposed to be inclusive in nature that any child that has any need for any any reason should be provided support. Um, and kind of originally, before I had really researched in my dissertation. I thought there's really not any guidance about children um, affected by imprisonment and how you can support that. But they, they are mentioned within the Additional Support Needs Act as a group that could um, require additional support, but there isn't the information there of how you support them. But it's a really difficult balance because you can't have every single group um, with spe specific, you know, what you should do to help every single group. So it's a really difficult a really difficult question and I think perhaps if there was more guidance alongside and um, the policies and legislations for the specific groups but maybe not within that actual policy itself but maybe more supporting guidance of places you can go to as professionals to you know do your professional development and find out more so maybe a supporting document might be a better answer to to being a little bit more equipped. And is that the kind of thing that you see the network creating yeah okay. I, I hope so I, th I think that's what we are we're trying to do is trying to just raise awareness of what support is out there and what the needs of these children and families are um, and what different professionals can do um, to support them so that that is our, our kind of main aim um, for our network I think Barry's hit the nail on the head and lots of it is clear because 
what happens is there's space within the policies to support children and families who are affected by imprisonment. But if you don't know what the needs are of the children's and children and family who are affected by imprisonment, how do you provide the support? And that's what your dissertation is about, Vary, isn't it? Because what she said is here is here's what the literature says these children and families need. Now let's look at the policy to see whether it does that. But I suppose that's the gap. And that you know, her point's right, we've got dyslexic children and, and children who are autistic and people who are deaf and all of the rest of it. The, everybody needs to be considered as a group. But if you don't understand the needs of the group, who's lobbying for the needs of the group? And I wonder whether Barry's right, whether there are groups that need to put up. So here are the needs of mm -hmm. deaf children. Here are the needs of children who um, are care experienced. Here are the needs of children who are parent in prison. I don't know. Because a, a lot of the needs, you know, in administration, a lot of the needs that are kind of your inclusive needs that a lot of different groups of children face are mentioned. It's, it's just the more kind of nuanced needs specifically for that group that, is left out in policy. Um, so yes, I think I think that maybe would be a, an effective way. I've noticed that the General Teaching Council for Scotland, so the GTCS, have started to produce a series of um, leaflets, if you like, information flyers to support teachers in particular areas. Um, maybe if the GTCS are listening, we might get in touch to ask you to, to do one. Um, we could put out the plea there just now, or maybe you could just contact them and be proactive about it. Um, I'm sure they'd, they'd welcome any advice for um, their members that they could get. So what about this conference? You've had what Amanda described as a mini conference, and I know she's doing a disservice because actually there were quite a few of you there, and you had some very interesting people attending. But I understand that you've got a bigger conference coming our way soon. Wait. Yeah, Tell us a bit that, about that. That's in May, so we're getting there with that, aren't we? <laughs> mm -hmm. We're just trying to pull everything together just now. And like you say, we're hoping to create a little booklet of places that people can go to get a little bit of help, and that will be given to the people that come along to the conference. So almost like their wee goodie bag at the end, it will be full of things that they can take with them. And that's good as well, isn't it? When you go away from something like that, that keeps you thinking about it even if it gets put in a drawer for a day or two, you'll go back to that and you can go and then you can find out the information. And I think sometimes that's all you need, isn't it? Just an answer book to start you off. Um, so yeah, our big conference, we're hoping to have two speakers. And um, we're still kind of tying that together, aren't we? But we're hoping to have two speakers and just more of an opportunity for smaller groups to come together and have a discussion because that works really well. People like to be able to give their input during the conference in the mini one. And is it going to be an online conference or are you hoping to be face-to-face -face by me? No, it'll be online for now, yeah. That'll be next year's <laughs> big thing, hopefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. Claire, we're, you know, we're just trying these things out. We haven't set ourselves goals. We haven't, the first conference, the mini conference came together really easily. This one has just been a bit more stuttery in terms of, of getting it together. But it's okay because we're learning how to do these things, you know, so it's not... We don't have a track record in doing it. We don't, if it doesn't work, it's okay, we'll learn from it and we'll be better the next time that we put it together. I think we were very fortunate in how quickly things came together for the February one and lulled ourselves into a, a false sense of security that that was always what's going, to, was what's going to happen. What we have promised is the people who we brought along to the February conference because we invited them, we'll get first dibs for places for the May conference, but we'll open it out and other people can attend as well. But we're learning about 
creating um, opportunities to disseminate what we know at the same time as we're disseminating what we know. So the, the process of sharing is as important to us as a network as the, the actual sharing, which is fine because we're all learning how to do these things and we don't have additional support from anybody else. We all just work it out between us. We've got a, an online Twitter group, sort of wee private Twitter group that we use um, and it's really well used and I'm really, I'm, I'm continually amazed by the research that's been shared and the links that have been shared and the people, the students, there aren't lots of um, people in the network, but so supportive of each other um, in terms of encouraging each other to, to want to do the very base. So we're learning as we're doing all of these things. So have you got a Twitter handle that people can follow? We just have the hashtag for now and it's Strath Hidden Voices. Strath as in Strathclyde. So Strath Hidden Voices and yep. people can follow your work there and they'll find out about your conference and any of your other events if they follow that. And then eventually your your leaflet or your advice, you can upload that for everybody as well, which would be great. So have you have you given any thought to a website or or the next steps for the for the network so that people can keep up with what you're doing or that they can join in time to come? I know, something like that would be really good, I think, down the line, but I think we want to do the May conference. Hopefully that will be as successful as the last one. And then we're always open to feedback. We always give the chance for feedback. So if that's something that people felt would be useful for them, then it's definitely something that I'm sure we would be able to think about. So before we finish then, what what key messages would you like people listening to this podcast to take away from this conversation in terms of um, the hidden voices that you seem to be listening to and advocating for and supporting to be made to be heard. I, I think um, one of the main main important things is to always have high expectations of the children um, affected by imprisonment and not to lower your expectations from what you hear, um, but to have high expectations of them that they can succeed with your support. And you don't have to know all the answers like we see none of us know all the answers but you can do a tiny bit to make a big difference if everyone starts to think about it and what they would do it's going to make a change for those families i think i would say that um, as i've said you know nobody knows everything but everybody knows something on the network um but we are here at strathclyde if people have been in prison they've had a family member in prison or they've got experience of working in that area for people to come along and, and join us as long as it's something to be able to contribute to that because what we want to do is to be able to look in and then look back out again. But I'm continually blown away by the ability of our students. And I don't know that we should be clear, but I know that, you know, you and I, when we worked together and we, we ran a primary education, we raised the entry tariff so that we could recruit the brightest and best students. And we shouldn't really be surprised when they are the brightest and the best. But I think the capacity our students have is, I'm, I'm continually blown away by it, that it doesn't matter where you are and you know, where you are in your course. Students have got a passion to be able to make a difference and, and to want to make a change. And that's it's really uplifting in lots of ways. And that's a really nice message to, to stop on. So thank you very much, Amanda, Samantha and Barry. It's been great listening to your work. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde Education Podcast Series. We'll be back soon with another episode.